Welcome to episode 41 of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. I'm Stephanie von Latke, and my co-host, Steve Seidman, will join me shortly. In today's episode, we talk about Space Force, the elections in Uganda, and the Governor General's resignation. Our feature interview is with Philippe Dufort from St. Paul University and Philippe Beaulieu-Brassard from the University of Copenhagen, who are co-leading a new Minds network. At the very end of the episode, we have Steve's R&R segment. Thank you for listening. Stephanie, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. The kids are back in school. We're very lucky in Kingston. So it's a big relief and skating rinks are at their best outside, which is also wonderful because the outdoors is pretty much all we've got right now. We're all suffering from a bit of cabin fever. How are things with you, Steve? Things are pretty good. It's really been very sunny here. So uh, I've been out snowshoeing along the river. I got my snowshoes uh, in preparation for the pandemic winter. I've never done it before, so I'm not particularly good at it. I found out that uh, ice is slippery, uh, although snowshoes <laughs> can uh, can take care of that to a large degree. So I, I enjoyed my walks along the Rideau River. So that's been a change of pace. And uh, I've been in contact with a friend of mine who's been wondering about whether Ottawa is cloudy all the time. It's like, no, it's actually blindingly clear mm -hmm. uh, these days when it's particularly, particularly cool. So it's been a good time to get out and, and do things. I still am not competent at cross-country skiing yet, but uh, my wife has been asking me, are you going to return those skis or are you going to use them? And I'm, I'm like, I'm going to use them. I just, uh, snowshoeing is a little bit more fun right now. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems like you're making some good progress from what I can see on, on Facebook and Instagram. Well, it's fun. As I said, it's fun to get outside. It's fun to see see things because it's the only reason to get outside these days besides the foray to the grocery store. Mm -hmm. I guess we'll just jump into it. One of the stories of the week uh, that we're following is Space Force. Mm -hmm. One of the questions is what's going to happen to Space Force because Trump really branded this as his thing. Uh, we saw during the inaugural, I was reminded of, of Space Force during the inaugural because you had the Air Force officers carrying the Air, you know, Air Force flag and the Marine officer carrying the Marine flag and then Navy officer carrying the Navy flag. And then you saw the Space Force flag and it reminded you, oh yes, they're stealing from Star Trek. Uh, <laughs> great. Is this is this going to persist? Is there a need for it? I had us both read Kelsey Atherton's piece on it. Uh, I think it was in Slate where he he looked at the future Space Force. And I'm curious as to your take on it. So we haven't really done it much about space since mocking the concept with the TV show we watched last summer. No, you're right. I'm, I'm quite curious to see whether we'll see continuity or, or change from Trump's policy and Trump's vision of the, the Space Force. And I'm very concerned about the narrative, about mm -hmm. how we refer to space and, and how it, these uh, conversations about space might be perceived by, by other countries. I'm always trying to think about the international relations angle. And mm -hmm. It's clear that the U.S. has, you know, established a kind of dominance in space, and that's what Trump was trying to reinforce in his narrative. And certainly by making Space Force the sixth branch of the armed forces, he was trying to elevate uh, that sense of importance. But at the same time, I think we need to be wary of those kinds of narratives because they can cause misinterpretation or miscalculation by other countries who uh, might be viewing space as a different, different kind of uh, international arena. So I think that's 
with President Biden coming into office, I would like to see a bit more caution in the type of mm -hmm. language that is used when referring to space. And I would like to see language of international cooperation rather than language which might incite further competition. So I think narrative is really something that we need to pay attention to as we as we look at this uh, transition. What about you? What's the first thing that comes to mind? I'm very much on the same page as you. Uh, I was thinking less of narrative and just the realities of putting weapons in space or having weapons on, on Earth directed towards space, that militarizing space is not a one country move, that, that you're absolutely right, that it reminds us of the basics of IR, of international relations, which is the security dilemma. Any effort to unilaterally improve one's own position in the world is not going to end there. Other countries will react, and in their reactions, they'll make the, the first mover less secure. So the United States asserts dominance on space, and then the Chinese and the Russians are going to say, whoa, 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 we can't afford that. So they they develop anti-satellite weapons technology. They test it, which causes debris in space. That causes the United States to worry about whether to take out their anti-satellite programs or how to how to how to deal with it. And so everybody else left worse off. And the way to out of the security dilemma is not through unilateral efforts, but through multilateral efforts to find ways that everybody could be a bit more secured. So is the United States better off by having competition in space, or is it better off by trying to figure out new arms control agreements that demilitarize space so that way there are no weapons up there of any kind? The existing treaties that deal with it are mostly banning nuclear weapons in space and not banning weapons entirely. And there had been some progress in the past, but we really need to revisit this because, again, other countries are getting more capable, so it's more likely that that they're going to put things up into space or they'll have uh, weapons aimed at space. And the second is, as I, as I highlighted, the testing. If you end up testing the stuff, you create debris. We already have enough bits and pieces in space that pose a threat to uh, not only the space station, but the satellites. And we've seen fictional accounts of this. The Sandra Bullock movie is one of them. You know, uh, what was it called? Gravity. But that was not an unfair representation of what, what can happen in spaces. You have all these little particles running around at high speeds and you can't armor your space stuff because then it becomes impossible to get out off the planet. Uh, so the real solution to this is to demilitarize space and, and it's in everybody's interest. The question is whether you can get there. And just like we've been pretty good about demilitarizing the moon, of uh, demilitarizing the Arctic to a large degree, and the Antarctic, uh, Antarctica, and it would make sense to do a better job of this. And that would mean diminishing the role of space force or turning it into something else. And that's why I like the Kelsey Atherton piece that we'll have uh, linked in the show notes, because it makes that argument that there's another way to go, because we probably can't get rid of space force because every bureaucracy develops its own inertia, its own inertia. But I think that having space force be something else than a new set of military enterprises would, would make sense. Have it be more aimed at fostering, you know, awareness of where the debris is, how to get rid of the debris in space. I can't remember which graduate students I've supervised over the past few years that, you know, master's projects that talked about this basic problem of, of space debris, but I've read a few papers on it from these students and it's, it's really a big challenge. So I think that's the problem more so than you know, how do we you know how do we develop a, a new branch that is aiming to dominate space? I think that's the wrong way to deal with it. Mm, I liked uh, how it was referred to in the article as the Space Force being more of a traffic controller than a defensive capacity. And I think, you know, having those conversations now will also help in making the mandate a bit clearer in the eyes of Americans. It's still new. So I think there's still an opportunity to uh, narrow that mandate and to also revamp its image. I mean, as you said, uh, there are a lot of jokes made about uh, the Space Force thus far. And certainly that Netflix series, which we discussed together with uh, Steve Carell, doesn't paint the Space Force in a great light. <laughs> 
So there's there's an opportunity there too, just in terms of what that looks like in terms of the, the bureaucracy to make some adjustments and course mm-hmm. corrections. But you're right, it's, it probably won't get abolished or won't go away. Yeah, but I, th- I think you're right. And I think Kelsey's right. I think, I think it needs to have a mission and that mission should not be domination. Uh, we've learned over the past 20 years that dominance is, is something that doesn't last and causes more problems than it solves. So we'll see if the Biden administration pursues that or not. Speaking about uh, dominance, one of the news stories that we've been following is Uganda, that uh, President Museveni has been around for 35 years. And recently, there's been a challenger, Bobby Wine, and there was an election a few weeks ago. And now the question is whether Bobby Wine's going to contest it or not. He's the opposition leader. And he's got an interesting past because he uh, he emerged from the music scene in, in Uganda where he was using his music to elevate himself and to elevate the next generation. Then he led this party that did well, but maybe could have done better if the election was actually free and fair. So we've got a bunch of countries registering their concern about about the situation. The good news is he was just freed from house arrest today. So that's the latest news. The strange thing about Musveni's reign is that the courts are somewhat independent. And so a judge ruled yesterday that either put him in a real jail or, or, or release him. There can't really be any place in between those two things. So you've been following this. What is your take on on this, Stephanie? No, I mean, for the international community looking at this, I'm glad that people are speaking out over what we've witnessed, certainly around the election. There are military and police forces in the streets, harassment of journalists, full shutdown of the internet across the country, and the incumbent sending a message claiming certainty over the election outcome, his re-election or else, so making veiled threats at his political opponents. And what I noticed in in terms of the the, the messages coming out of uh, the Ugandan government or the, the spokespeople taking to Twitter and other outlets to intervene is this parallel that's being made with the U.S. or U.S. being referenced. One of those spokespeople was talking about the U.S. expression of concern over the integrity of other countries' electoral processes and was calling that hypocritical. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm thinking that maybe in the wake of the events in in Washington, D.C. and and the insurrection, maybe we're likely to see more and more dictators around the world drawing these types of parallels and trying to call on American hypocrisy. So it's interesting to see how how the recent events in the United States are, are being sort of instrumentalized in the context of other crises surrounding elections. So that's definitely something I I noticed. And then, of course, you know, I think this crisis is still unfolding. Uh, You're right. Bobby One uh, is no longer under under house arrest, but but we're looking maybe at the beginning of investigations around the election. So I think we'll probably see the situation a bit more clearly next time we talk on the podcast and, and wondering whether you know, this is going to lead to more uh, protests in the street. The other parallel kept on uh, making in, in my mind as I was reading stories around Uganda was the, the stories about the 10 year anniversary of the Arab Spring. And when citizens feel like their rights have been um, disregarded in that way. And when you have, you know, a, a a clear alternative in terms of an opposition candidate, maybe this is the beginning of a, of a new wave uh, of a new political shift. Mm-hmm. So that was also at the back of my mind. And of course, another parallel that I was drawing was with the situation we're seeing in Russia with uh, Navalny, another case where in a country where you weren't really seeing any political alternatives mm-hmm. in the wake of Navalny's poisoning, you're seeing people mobilizing in favor of that political opponent. And, and maybe this being the beginning of, of a more broad-based movement in, in Russia questioning the legitimacy of Putin. 
Yeah, well, the pictures last week of people protesting when it was negative 50 degrees, I believe Celsius. And when it's negative 50, it really doesn't matter whether it's Celsius or Fahrenheit. I'd seen those pictures. And I think one thing that ties together all this is uh, the challenge for protesters and the challenge for governments are a focal point. That in Africa, there's the focal point of the 10-year anniversary and that elections also serve as focal points. So one of the strange things is having autocrats organize elections, tr mostly trying to legitimate their rule, but they serve as focal points, times for protesters to organize and to rally, they have something to fight against, uh, something to, to talk about, something to get out in public and, and try to resist. Navalny's return, you know, everybody's everybody like, why is Navalny returning to Russia? This is insane. They poisoned him. Why is he going back? He's only going to get arrested. And then he gets arrested. And what Navalny was really doing was trying to provide a focal point, essentially, for everybody who's aggrieved in Russia for one reason or another to get out in the streets. And it worked. On the flip side of it, January 6th was a focal point for the rioters in DC because that was the day that the election was going to be certified. And so that was that was a moment where they could rally people around a cause, which was to try to stop that from happening. And so one of the questions for analysts like ourselves is to anticipate is what are the things that are going to get people mobilized around something. And so the 10 year anniversary of Arab Spring, I hadn't been thinking about that when I was thinking about 2021, but that clearly is going to cause people in the Middle East and in Africa to look back and go, okay, we were, we thought we were going to do well from these protests. And the real story of Arab Spring was that while protests were contagious and, and went from coast to coast in the Middle East, we did not see regime change. We saw regime change in Tunisia, but we saw a coup and then, a, and then another coup in Egypt. We saw uh, civil wars in Libya and, and Syria. We saw repression in Saudi Arabia and Bahrain, and we've seen civil war in Yemen. And so now that it's 10 years later, you may see more activism as people look back and use the anniversary dates as ways to get people mobilized. And so one thing we want to think about is, are there other events that will cause people to, to get out? Because it's, again, it's collective action is really hard, but these kinds of focal points can bring people out. And I think Navalny's deliberate creation of one at the risk of his own life is, is kind of amazing, but that's what the, the really most influential activists do is they create these moments in time. So we'll see how this plays out. And speaking of influential figures, uh, we have one of our own in Canada that just stepped down from her role as governor general, Julie Payette, uh, resigned and was being investigated for workplace harassment. And she put out a statement, which uh, I don't know if it was a true acknowledgement or sincere apology, but definitely refers to people not always seeing her workplace as healthy and safe and apologizing for that in a very indirect uh, manner. So I think there's a lot that's been written thus far about the, the governor general's uh, resignation, questions surrounding the vetting process, the appointment process, issues were raised about her past, and certainly lots of discussions about the implications of this latest scandal for Trudeau and his government. But also many were surprised to learn the governor general is the commander in chief. <laughs> In addition to being the representative of the head of state, I had a few uh, text messages, you know, expressing surprise at, at this from, from friends and, and colleagues. So as a newly minted Canadian citizen, Steve, surely you were aware of this. I'm aware of it because I, when I was studying the Canadian operations in Afghanistan, I was trying to figure out who the commander in chief of Canada was. I found this out and I was like, wait, but how, oh my, how does this work? Because... <laughs> Yes, she gets to wear a uniform or she got to wear a uniform, but when was the last time a governor general actually served as commander in chief that has issued orders to do anything? My colleague, Phil Agasse, and your friend, Phil, point out that 
these powers of the governor general are really exercised by the prime minister. So it creates some confusion, you know, when people think about, well, who's the real commander in chief of the Canadian Armed Forces? You'll, ha- you know, I remember a few years ago, Michelle John says, I am. And it was like, really? Uh, and, and, and there was some story about her thinking about or trying to get troops to go to Haiti after one of the disasters there. And yes, they have that formal power, but it's never exercised. So we have uh, two speakers, uh, two people being interviewed for our next segment, our, our future interview. Can you tell us a little bit about it since you're the one who did the heavy lifting of interviewing these people? Yes. Our feature interview is with Philippe Dufort and Philippe Beaulieu-Brassard, and they are the co-leads of the MINDS Military Design and Innovation Collaboration Network. So this is part of a series of interviews we've been conducting, Steve, and, and airing on Battle Rhythm, where we're trying to get a sense of that security and defense research ecosystem, and, mm-hmm. and certainly trying to get a sense for what each of the Minds Network is doing. And so we must be getting close to the end of our list with, with this last one from Philippe Dufar and Philippe Boulieu-Brassard. I think, I think we're about halfway through or maybe two thirds of the way through. This one was particularly valuable because I have been following this from afar and I just didn't really know what military design meant. I wasn't sure if it was about what the military uniforms looked like or what, you know, I didn't understand the larger enterprise. And so I listened to your interview with the two Philippe's and I learned a lot about what they're trying to do. And now it makes a lot more sense to me about what they are trying to do. And if you're interested in what military design means, uh, stick around for the interview because through Stephanie's great probing questions and through the two Philippe's responses, get a clear idea of what it means uh, to, ha- to for the government to be funding a research network on military design. So uh, thanks for hanging out with me again, Stephanie. I'm glad that you're getting a a little time to get things done with your kids in school. I'm glad the kids are in school. That's definitely a better place for them than being stuck at home. Unfortunately, a lot of my friends here in Ottawa are not in the same position, but uh, it's good for you. And I'm glad that that things are working out well for you right now. Thank you so much. It's nice talking to you. And yes, I am definitely thinking about the working parents in, in Ottawa and Toronto who have to wait a little while longer until things get back to a normal rhythm. Our feature interview today is with Philippe Dufort from St. Paul University and Philippe Beaulieu-Brassard, currently a Marie Curie Fellow at the Center for Military Studies at the University of Copenhagen. Thank you very much for being on Battle Rhythm. And let's start with introducing your new MINDS network. It's called Military Design and Innovation Collaboration Network, Mobilizing Innovation Methodologies for Defense Challenges. What is this all about? Yeah, thank you, Stephanie, for uh, for this. So, uh, so basically, uh, there's a lot of uh, innovation in the way we describe our, our network, and uh, I just want to make this clear that we focus especially on conceptual uh, innovation capabilities of commanders, uh, their staffers, instructors, and uh, researchers. And our our hope with these capabilities is to radically changing uh, our perspective and provide new solutions to the three minds challenges uh, that we decided. To to, to address. So basically the uh, gray zone and hybrid warfare challenge, anticipating future challenges and the future of capacity uh, building. So uh, uh, you uh, might be uh, asking yourself, what do we mean by conceptual innovation? So what are, are we exactly uh, talking about? I think the best way is to provide concrete example 
So the uh, authorities in uh, Australia back at the beginning of the 2000, between 2008 and 2013, were facing a dire situation in uh, King's Cross in Sydney. There were more and more uh, petty crime fighting uh, going on and, and uh, a break of, uh, of property because every weekend there would be 30,000 party goers going to uh, Sydney uh, King Cross. The local authorities uh, could no longer invest more resources. It was out of their budget to uh, add more police officers to the region or cameras or any kind of traditional kind of security dispositive. So they uh, mandated uh, an organization called Designing Out Crime to try to find innovative solutions to address the issue. So what this, this organization did is that they, they invited uh, a bit like, like a Minds Network, actually. Uh, they gathered uh, several uh, students, uh, professionals from different areas uh, to address this, uh, this issue. And they did some, some design activities to try to uh, totally rethink uh, security in this, in this area. So instead of looking at this from, uh, from a traditional security perspective. Well, they came to the conclusion that uh, they were not facing you know, a, a, a very serious uh, a threat uh, in the form of organized crime or, or, or terrorism or something like that. Actually, they were facing uh, young people trying to have fun. So they totally changed their way of thinking about the situation by thinking about it as if it was a music festival. So by uh, uh, using this, we call this a frame uh, to rethink the situation, they developed totally new solutions, uh, such as redesigning totally the infrastructure, for instance, the, the transport network to allow a better flow of people in and out. Instead of hiring more police officers, they hired a tour guide to, to, to uh, help people uh, redirect themselves. They also uh, used apps for, for the line at the clubs and all that. So all of these measures would not have been imaginable uh, with the tra traditional way of, of looking at security. And thanks to this new concept, which is the, the music festival, uh, they were able to totally reimagine the situation so that right now in 2020, we can uh, re, re, reinvest uh, uh, King's Cross uh, and have a lot of uh, a pleasant time as, as tourists or as, uh, as local, uh, local people. So that's precisely what, what our network seeks to do, is to develop these, these capabilities to uh, radically rethink the, the most important challenges that the defense team face to create innovative uh, solutions that will uh, allow us to move uh, forward. Okay, and since you opened the door already to the policy challenges, you mentioned them just earlier, the rise of gray zone hybrid warfare, anticipating future challenges and the future of capacity building. Have you already started to pinpoint certain solutions? Are there already some early insights from your work? On this side, we have to keep in mind that our network, what we try to achieve is really to be a partner of the Canadian Department of Defense for them to build capacities to respond to those challenges. So in this, in this sense, uh, we have been very much involved with some institution in Canada, and we'll come back to this. But what I can mention at this point is that it's much easier now that we are an official network with MINDS to get in close relationship with institutions and to support them in daily processes of uh, capacity buildings or reforms in the way they think, in the way they approach uh, those challenges and those problems, and to give basic formations, offer workshops, not really about specific problems, but about the way they tackle those problems. So in the first few months of the existence of the network, we had many contacts and people are 
reaching more and more to our network to get those advice, formation, and to be in touch with the many members we have, not only in Canada, but around the world. Our network is uh, more or less 20 researchers in Canada, but we have more than 100 uh, specialists who are practitioners, scholars, instructors in many NATO countries. So our role here, and I think it's going well, is to network and build this learning community and to involve the defense team in it. So yes, in the last few months, uh, this was uh, quite a thrill to see this accelerating. And I think this is the best way for us to respond to those uh, three challenges. And if I can just uh, uh, bounce on this, I think this is what is uh, perhaps uh, uh, is make the difference of, of our network, uh, is that we uh, basically co-learn uh, with the defense team, uh, we co-create uh, with, uh, with them, and we co-produce uh, knowledge publications and, um, and other uh, sort of, of deliverables. So I can give you an example. So right now we are partnering with the, the Canadian Joint Operation Command uh, planning staff, and they are developing a professional development program on uh, design thinking, and we are their key partner in making this happen. So I don't want to uh, uh, to spoil anything because it's going to further kick in in, in February onwards. But we are going to to tackle well, most likely the uh, the pandemic approach to try to design it in a way that uh, the defense team will be in a better position to address the rise of the gray, the gray zone and hybrid uh, uh, warfare. And in the end, we are also going to uh, write together a primer to summarize what we learned during this uh, uh, this partnership. So again, it's, it's not uh, us experts that are uh, um, giving them uh, the solutions, uh, but we are t- with the innovation, conceptual, conceptual innovation methods, design methods, uh, we are together together uh, developing these, um, uh, these these solutions. But I don't have a list of, of them right now because, uh, well, right now we are basically setting up the, uh, the infrastructure and the, the partnerships to make all this uh, happen. Okay, I want to, uh, to ask some clarification on what that looks like because you mentioned earlier the setting up of, of workshops and you just mentioned now in your answer sort of the, the importance of innovation and the way that you think about these problems. So that means really changing the way that people think through problems. And that's not necessarily an easy thing to do. So can you just give our listeners a sense of the types of strategies that you deploy to facilitate that kind of thinking? Yes, I, I can. I can jump in. So it, of course, it's uh, it's not easy, and and I, I see it as a, as a very stimulating challenge, uh, especially for uh, somebody uh, who do not have um, a military uh, background. But I think that uh, we are fortunate in the sense that uh, there is a, a sense, I think, among most uh, officers, uh, that their their traditional tools to address problems are no longer effective for the contemporary world uh, they live in. So if we think about operational planning, uh, for instance, you know the, uh, the fact that uh, uh, for any kind of uh, a problem, you need to develop uh, a key goal and try to reverse engineer, let's say, a process to, to, to get there in, in terms of steps. Uh, I think that most people are aware of, of the limitations of these ways of, of addressing problem. So for us, it's an opportunity to, to tell them that there is something else, actually many other alternatives and it's worth trying these alternatives uh, there, there is no silver lining uh, right now but so far design methods 
uh, are getting more and more popular across uh, NATO members and uh, and partners. So what what we do to uh, to get there first, of course, uh, we need to have champions in the organizations, and and we have more and more uh, of them. And 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 usually it's with them that we can tap into this this momentum to um, to give it a try. And more concretely, what we do is that uh, we usually develop a, a sequence of of activities with uh, defense uh, practitioners, with with academics and, and other professionals to address a specific uh, specific challenge. So the rise of the gray zone can be a specific uh, challenge to 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 address, uh, and then we will uh, set up. Uh, groups and small teams to to address it. So there are tons of, of metas, like 101 design metas. I don't want to go into this for this this interview. But then uh, we act more as sort of facilitators uh, to make them give birth to an innovative uh, uh, solution, so to speak. So basically, we create the conditions for them to arrive to this innovation innovative solution instead of giving it uh, to them directly. Excellent. And for my next question, I think I know the answer to this, but perhaps you can each take turns with this next one. I'd like to know how your mind's network connects to your own individual research plans. On this, if I uh, can jump in first, I've been working in Colombia since 2010, more or less, with generals. And the goal there was really to map and understand the innovative practices at the strategic level. My hypothesis was that just below the radar of uh, doctrinal development, and in the case of Colombia, doctrinal importation of the US text, there was a richness. There was uh, many practices and, and strategic thinking that was developed on the ground, that was developed by those practitioners uh, in Colombia, we were born in a state of conflict, grow up as teenager, let's say in the midst of a war. And professionally, they were always in the field, always in the theater of war. There's no going back home. So they have an extent and intimate knowledge of war and strategy. And this is uh, my research on, let's say, we use the, the, the term tacit knowledge of wars. And during this whole time, uh, I was always amazed by the richness of the practitioners' uh, knowledge of operation development and strategy and how doctrine was unable to capture this complexity. So this network is all about this. What we do is we go in an institution, we meet, we get close to people, we create spaces for them to even discover their own the richness of their of their thinking of their practices and to uh, externalize it to share it and to diffuse it within the institution so you see that our network is really about bottom-up production of knowledge we are brokers of knowledge not producers of knowledge so this was part of my phd that was part of my uh, research as a professor but now that we have this network it's just an explosion of possibilities and and capabilities to make this uh, happen in canadian institutions uh, we have been working a lot with nato partners in the last few years when our network was uh, still informal and we had i have to say some difficulties to enter canadian defense institutions and work with them now that we have the minds network i mean it's a new world uh, we can meet with people it's way easier we have support from the minds team uh, in order to make contacts and all of our friends partners colleagues co-researchers that are a member of the defense team can reach to us and organize all those uh, workshop occasion formations 
So um, it's a trillion years and it's uh, an exponential grow, I would say. So we don't know where it's going, but it's definitively trilling to see where it started. In my case, in Colombia with this PhD research and now all those partners that we have in Canada and around the world. Okay, thank you. And as you're talking, I, I'm also very aware of the fact that to build these kinds of collaborative relationships, you also need to establish really strong baseline trust. You're talking about a community of practice and, and working together across professional divides. And so I'm thinking about what this first year has been like for you, uh, also considering the special situation of the pandemic and the certain constraints that this imposes. But more broadly, I'm curious to compare notes as I've embarked on a similar journey with Justin Massy from UCAM with the launch of our network for strategic analysis. Can you walk us through what it's been like for you from the moment you heard the good news to now? Well, it was, it was quite thrilling to receive that news because as you know, in social sciences, the kind of funding we get with the usual uh, grants is, is not the same amount. So for us, it was time to say, okay, uh, we have been doing something. It was great. We had many partners. Uh, we have built an informal network with many fantastic practitioners, researchers, instructors. But now we have the means to make it happen, to make something out of it that will be unavoidable uh, reference on the topic of security design. And so that was the first thought I had in mind. So now is the time to create something that will last and that will occupy that space, not only in Canada, but uh, with other NATO partners and, and, and academic institutions. So for us, it was, I think, and Philippe will, will say if, if I'm right, but it was the moment we realized that we had that opportunity to create a community with an annual convention that would last in time and that would have a life of its own. Yeah, so of course, it was a really good day when we received the good news. I would say that, that and from, from the perspective of, of our network, it's, it's really like, it really signaled that we moved from more of a, of a grassroots uh, network towards a more professional network, a more formal uh, network. For, and for many of them, you know, I remember receiving emails from them. It was like, okay, this is it. Like when we will write the, the history design in the armed forces, uh, this will be a key moment signaling that we are now in the uh, top league you know we are no longer at the uh, let's say the, the local league and and that's the way we saw it and that's one of the reasons why we decided to uh, develop a, a non-profit organization uh, to be in a better position to uh, manage this growth of not only means but also of, of ambitions that came uh, with it uh, we were successful in this the non-profit is called the archipelago of design and and in terms of first year i mean we've of course we've, we've been uh, affected by by covid restrictions and all that because most of say, our, our, our events were first uh, implied a lot of internationals and international locations uh, as well, uh, like uh, Israel. And also uh, design is something that is really, let's say, uh, social, something that is also very tactile. For instance, uh, there are some design activities that requires a lot of visualization in teams. Uh, you can do this uh, online, but it's really not the same experience. So, And also all of the uh, debate, also when you do a lot of uh, uh, soul searching, which is part of, of design, uh, I mean, it's not the same to be in front of a screen than being an, around a table. So that's why in terms of, let's say, more events uh, calendar, 
we had to postpone uh, several uh, events. We were still able to do uh, other more traditional events uh, like webinars, things uh, like that. And because it's, uh, again, we, we have a lot of ambition. We've been focusing a lot on, on, on building this, this infrastructure, hiring the best fit to help us achieve achieve this, this dream. And now we have only, I think, uh, one member to hire before uh, getting a full full house for what we want to to achieve. So I think that uh, it was more of the, the building phase that we had to uh, to do. And I think that after that, in, in terms of long run, what we will get out of this will be, uh, will be phenomenal. On this, if I can just add, yes, so the news was great, but uh, in the weeks that followed with the... Um, the COVID-19 situation, it was quite difficult to get the projects to start. So the example I would like to share, we had this project, which was fantastic. We had 12 brigadier generals from Canada who accepted and were very, very keen to make a, an expedition to Israel. And we managed the whole thing to have the, um, the generals course instructors in Israel to receive those 12 general and the goal was to work on the, um, the pan-domain Canadian approach and everything was ready then the pandemic and we said okay let's postpone by a few weeks by a few months and now uh, we don't know if that kind of activities will happen and when we talk design as Philip mentioned you cannot just replace it by online discussion because what is important is people to be in a room and to really challenge the way they think and to do this there is a lot of people drawing, people talking over each other, people yelling sometimes, people <laughs> getting angry and happy. So it's really intense human, let's say, interrelationships that is the, the vector of, of movement, of uh, intellectual drift and the rest. So for us, it's extremely difficult at the moment because we need this proximity between humans that are really trying to challenge their thinking. So this whole year has been uh, difficult on this aspect. And also our coordinator of the network was, uh, was sick during the summer. So it was a hard start, but now we feel that we are ready to kickstart 2021 with uh, loads of activities. And I think you will hear a, a lot more about the archipelago of design and the, the IMDC network in the upcoming months. I want to back up just a second because you mentioned something and this brought on some very vivid pictures in my mind, which are quite entertaining. The idea of getting 12 Brigadier Generals in a room and have them draw together. So can you just elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. And we have to mention that what we do is to learn from practitioners, from people who are already in institution. And what I just mentioned is something that they do in Israel. They are the one who started the military design in the 90s. And basically their general's course is uh, led by uh, two people, Brigadier General Shimon Nabe and Dr. Ofra Greisha. And they are the one who developed that kind of, I wouldn't call it a workshop, I wouldn't call it a course, because what it is, is to bring generals together, put them in a room and ask problems and challenge their, the way they frame problems. And there are many uh, steps to what they do and they always change it. But essentially, they bring generals together and they give them a lot of trouble. They challenge what they say. They pinpoint what is assumed in their thinking, what is coming from doctrine, what could be changed, what could be invented and created. And they bring those people to 
become their own, let's say, uh, disruption with time. So if they need to draw, they will draw. If they need to do Legos, they will do Legos. They don't do Lego, by the way, but they, <laughs> they do use a lot of visualization and non-linear thinking and discussion. It goes in all directions, and that's the point. They want them to reinvent themselves. So yes, this is quite a fascinating thing to witness, and I really hope that we can go to Israel to have this discourse, to have this experience, but the COVID-19 situation makes it very difficult, at least for the short term. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I want to now move to one fact about the, the MINDS program that not everybody might know, but part of the MINDS objectives is to train the next generation of security and defense experts. So I was wondering if you two had any advice for graduate students and emerging scholars based on your experience with the network? Yeah, totally. So for me, what really made the difference that between night and day was really uh, field work with uh, defense uh, practitioners. Because before that, it, it's very difficult. Like it's, you, you can still do a great research, great reflection, but it's, it's almost impossible to get a sense of what's going on on the ground. It's, it's very easy to uh, fall in love with particular perspective or concept and lost touch. So I think that even if uh, there are a tons of methods available to do research and all that, I think the, the, the quicker students uh, go into field work for their research, the better it is uh, because they will also develop a network of uh, practitioners that are also interested in their in their question. And I think that from my perspective, uh, I did research with uh, diplomats and also with a lot with military officers. And, and in my general uh, experience, uh, military officers are really open to uh, discuss about any kind of topics and also to learn from, from the student, which is something that is less uh, present among among. Uh, diplomats. So that that's my top example. Of course, it's it's more complicated to set this up and, and to give it a go. There's also some some uh, research ethics uh, procedures that need to take place before, but it, it's totally uh, worth it. And again, I would not be uh, talking to you right now if I didn't do all of this uh, uh, field work before. On my side, the first thing I would say is that they need to trust their guts. When I was embarking on my, on my PhD at Cambridge, I submitted a research project that was deeply inspired by practical operational challenges and conflicts and ways to conduct research in the midst of action. Uh, I've been told that this was not academically sound. I needed standard case studies. So this is what I did in the end. So I did the, the case studies and I did the a research that is kind of traditional. It was a great experience, but it took me a whole decade to come back to this project, a project that is really oriented towards being useful to challenge the way we think about practice. And, and it, it was necessary for me to be a professor and, and to be completely independent with my own financial uh, means. So in other words, I would say that all kinds of projects are possible. If you are interested in practical challenges and methodologies connected with the learning by doing approach, academia will be resistant. It will be resistant to it, but you can find many entry points to, to go forward, insist, and realize that kind of research project. I think on uh, building on an explicitly pragmatic uh, epistemology, an action research methodology, or participatory ethnographic uh, data collection methods, what I mean is it is possible to be involved in the action 
while doing sound research. But you need to be convinced and you need to convince a lot of people. Uh, there is a danger, however. Once you go down that path, the more you are connected with practitioners, uh, learning communities, the more you may experience also, on the other side, the hardships of keeping and sustaining open communication channels with academics and the usual disciplinary conventions and journals. Many scholars, they have difficulties understanding knowledge production outside of the usual disciplinary ways. So with an important distance from practice, it's sometimes difficult to value that kind of procedures. In a nutshell, my advice for uh, PhD students is to get involved, to gain an intimate understanding of security practices, but keep in mind that you need to cultivate good relationships with academia if you want to get a job. Mm, that's really great advice. Thank you. This is uh, the end of our, of our interview. Thank you so much, Philippe and Philippe, for joining me on Battle Rhythm. I learned a lot, and thank you for sharing what your network is about with our listeners. I wish you the best of luck, and I know there are great things in store for your network, and I will stay tuned. Thank you very much. Thank you, Stephanie. For this week's uh, R&R segment, I've got three more recommendations for you. And I think the first two are Netflix and the third is Amazon, if I'm not mistaken. The first one is Into the Night. It's a strange uh, limited series. Maybe it'll have a second season. I guess we'll have a second season. But it's about this people who are on this airplane and they have to keep flying because something's happened to the sun. And if you're on the ground and exposed to, the, to sunlight, well, people die. And so they keep on landing and just ahead of the sun, uh, ahead of sunrise, getting whatever supplies and there's complications. It's a Belgian uh, series. Uh, so it's dubbed into English, but since one of the protagonists is from NATO, I thought it was relevant for our listeners and uh, NATO headquarters does show up, although I don't think it, it looks at all like NATO headquarters, but anyway, so it's an interesting series. I recommend that over the break, we watched Enola Holmes, which is the, younger sister of Sherlock Holmes. And it stars the girl who played one of the leads in Stranger Things. I I'm, I'm, can't remember her name right now, but she's delightful and it's an interesting mystery. And it's interesting to see Sherlock Holmes play the older brother role as opposed to the lead. So that's Enola Holmes. And the third one is the long delayed New Mutants. If you're an X-Men fan, uh, you'll enjoy it because it does a pretty good job of introducing most of the original set of the new mutants that that was supposed to be the next generation of, of X-Men a long time ago. And I actually, that was one of the first comic books I bought was that was issue number one. So I, I, I think they did a really good job. Uh, Maisie Williams is in it and she's always terrific. She played Arya in Game of Thrones. I'm currently watching another series of hers right now. So those are my three recommendations for this week. Uh, do find something to watch to keep your mind off of the things that, you know, the endless winter or pandemic and take care of yourselves. Have a good week. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments. And so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS or email them to CDSN.RCDS at Outlook.com. Thank you.